Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Nkem Oshen. Nkem is a public health analyst for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She's also a board member at the White Dress Project. You guys might remember that because we had their founder, Tanika, on the show recently. And Nkem also lives with fibroids. So lots to discuss here. We're going to jump into it. Nkem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lauren. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. So, you know, we like to start at the beginning of the story here, and I would love to jump into your fibroid journey. How did you first realize that you had fibroids, and how have you kept your health under control since the diagnosis? So I was first diagnosed with fibroids in 2015. Um, at the time, it seemed like my period just changed so drastically. Um, I was literally changing my pads every 30 minutes. Um, I would clot so much. The clots would be so big. I felt like clots were just pouring out of me like all the time. Um, It was painful. My my periods lasted two weeks or more. Um, I would bleed in between periods. Um, I, at the time I was working in New York, but living in New Jersey. So I would commute by train or bus and have so many accidents on on the train, on the commute to work or the commute from work. And I just never expected, you know, it's just blood just gushing down. I don't mean to get so so graphic. No, but I mean, this is the reality of life with fibroids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I remember this one time vividly, I was on the, thank God I was wearing black, you know, I was on the train and I just felt of pressure in in my abdomen. Like it was really tight. Mm -hmm. And apparently a a whole bunch of clots were getting ready to come out, which is why that happened. And it just gushed out. (laughs) And the blood was literally dripping down my leg. And I was thanking God that I was, I wore pants, that 
I wasn't wearing white. I was wearing black because yeah. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. And even at work, you know, I would stain my clothes, stain the chair. Um, it, it's, it was humiliating and I felt so ashamed, you know. So just to backtrack a little bit, um, I did, at the time, I didn't even think anything was wrong, to be honest with you. I know I kind of just normalized it in my own head. Um, and I said to myself, you know, I'm a woman. Women always go through changes in their body. This is me just going through that change. It's normal. Normal, right? But it got to a point where I couldn't take two or three steps without feeling like I was going to pass out. Like every step wow. was a struggle. Like so I you felt really, like I was, you like brushed your own symptoms aside until you couldn't function anymore. Right. Even at, but Lauren, even at that point when I couldn't, when I felt like I couldn't function, I still didn't go to the doctor. So it was at the urging of my sister, who's a doctor. Because she noticed that like the inside of my eyes were really pale, the inside of my mouth was really pale, and the palms of my hand were really pale. Mm. So she said, No, you look white. Like you like look you were like losing too much blood, too much iron. Exactly. So she said, You need to go to the doctor, like right now. Um, so make an appointment, get the blood work done. So I did that, got the blood work done. Um my, my doctor called me. She said, you need to go to the emergency room right now because your hemoglobin, which is the, your blood level, is fatally low. It's, it's a three. And a, a normal hemoglobin level for a woman is between 12 to 15. And I was a three. Wow. So I went, I went to the emergency room. Um, they ran a host of tests, of course. They also ran an echocardiogram on my heart because I had this cough that wouldn't go away. So they found out that I developed something called cardiomegaly, um, which is an enlarged heart. And the reason my heart was enlarged was because my heart was working in overdrive to compensate for the lack of blood in my body. Um, so it was horrible. Um, I, I needed a blood transfusion. Um, they say they said I'm, we're nervous that if you walk out of these hospital doors without getting one, you can go into cardiac arrest at any moment. So you need a blood transfusion. Um, well, they didn't and mess around with you at all. They went straight for the no, reality. No. Yeah. They basically said your your hemoglobin level is not conducive to life. That's the those are the words they, they use. It's not it's conducive very to life. Scary. Yeah. So I got the blood transfusion, and of course they attributed all of this to at the time one large fibroid that was on the surface of my uterus. Um, and at the time, like I said, I was living in New Jersey, so this was at a New Jersey hospital. And the doctor said because it's in the best location, and because you only have one. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to perform the surgery on you. Instead, my immediate concern is managing your bleeding because we don't want you to continue um, to bleed out profusely like you've been bleeding for the past several months. But like, um, if, it's a, if that's a root cause concern, surely removing the fibroid would prevent all the bleeding, no? Right. It would. It would. You know, but, you know, I, honestly, Lauren, like in retrospect, I... I I was kind of happy with that. I'm a different kind of patient. <laughs> I was kind of happy with that only because I was scared to have surgery. Yeah. And I, I guess the idea also fearful. when your hemoglobin's that low, the idea of surgery is like, can you actually survive surgery safely? Yeah. At that like, level, even if it's laparoscopic. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is really scary. Yeah. Okay. So it's you scary. opted not to have the surgery. So what happened next? 
So they just put me on birth control. Um, so I initially they put me on the oral contraceptive to manage the bleeding. That worked for about a year or so until it stopped working. So they switched the birth control to the Depo Provera shot, um, which I've been on since 2017, and I'm still on it. I was only supposed to be on it for two years, but the amount of relief that it is giving me, like I. I can't see myself not being on it. And it's so bad because it doesn't treat the root cause of the issue, right? Like it's just masking it. It's it's masking the symptoms, but it's not treating the co- root cause. But I'm just, I, I'm very fearful. Um, I'm very fearful about getting surgery. Um, I'm very fearful about what that looks like for me. Sure. Um, but I know it's something that a decision I ultimately have to make because I know I cannot be on this depot shot for too much longer yeah. because of the long-term side effects. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also like, depending on what your plans are, if you are planning to have children or, you yeah. know, like start a family, I mean, that is also a concern. So have you been monitoring the growth of the fibroids since then with regular ultrasounds? Yeah. And I'll tell you, those fibroids grew. I grew many more fibroids. So it's turned from being just one big fibroid on the surface to my uterus to to having fibroids all over my uterus in different locations, different sizes. And I think that was sort of another concern that I had with having the surgery too, because I was fearful that if I did have the surgery, there's a 50% chance that they might grow back. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to keep having surgery, perpetual surgery, you know, so I, like you said, I do want to have kids. I desire to have kids um, and constantly having surgery to remove fibroids can compromise that for me. So I think that that was part of my fear in having it, the surgery done. I wonder um, along the journey, I mean, we're going to talk more about the white dress project because it's interesting you talked about (laughs) when you were wearing black and bleeding (laughs) versus wearing white. That's the whole reason it's called the white dress project. Um, is that you can bleed and you can wear your white. Um, But I'm curious to know how you got connected to the White Dress Project and whether that's also influenced now meeting other women who are living with the same condition, whether that's also influenced your future plans and desires to get surgery and and maybe giving you a little more confidence in surgery too. Right. Yeah. So um, I, when I like I said, I started this journey in New Jersey. So I moved to Maryland in 2017, about two years into my fibroid journey. Um, and I was on, because I felt so alone at that point, because at least when I was in New Jersey, I was with family, right? I was living with my mom, living with my dad, living with my little sister. Um, but when I was in Maryland, I'm like by myself. Um, so I was in search for support, you know, um, community, because I did feel so so very alone. Um, and on my ser- in my search, I stumbled across the White Dress Project. And I'm like, hmm, the White Dress Project, what is this? This looks interesting. So I read um, what the mission was all about. Um, and I'm like, this is amazing. This is something that I need. And I was initially searching for support. Um, and I reached out to the DC, Maryland, Virginia um, chapter of it. And they got back to me. We had conversations about me being involved in it. The rest is history. Um, And it has definitely, you know, it's definitely helped me in terms of 
creating a sisterhood one um, among women with shared experiences. I feel like we're all united with those shared experiences, um, shared vision, shared mission, shared hope. Um, and two, yeah, like I, I think be, no, I know, <laughs> you know, being a part of this um, organization has definitely helped me become more confident in the next steps of having surgery because every single person on board has had at least one surgery um, because of fibroids. I'm the only one that has never had surgery to remove oh, wow. them. Wow. The only one. Wow. That's really interesting. So, I mean, you mentioned yeah. the sisterhood, obviously, through the White Dress Project and also your family when you were still living in New Jersey. Did you find that, like, throughout this journey that you really needed an advocate in terms of, like, finding health and getting healthy? And and who is that for you? And how has that changed or impacted your relationship with them? Oh, it's a couple of people, actually. Um, so from the very beginning of my journey, um, I definitely realized that I needed a personal advocate. You know, when I was first diagnosed with fibroids, I did not I didn't know much about the condition. Um, and that lack of knowledge um, made me a bit fearful. You know, I didn't know how to effectively advocate for myself. Um, my mother actually also struggled with fibroids, but she never really discussed it with me until I was diagnosed with it. Um, like, why would that be? Is there a reason she sort of withheld? You know, I think it's partly because I was so young when she was first diagnosed, when she was going through it. Um, okay, she so had not the to understand a period level on fibroids, right? <laughs> that yeah. I mean, I think, um, and I think it's because it's been normalized so much. Um, all women have fibroids, you know, you'll be fine, you know? So I think she didn't right. feel... That's so interesting because um, I feel like actually that's not the prevailing wisdom. Like the prevailing wisdom is that a lot of people don't even know about fibroids and yet 80% of black women and 70% of white women are going to develop them by the time they're 50, right? I know, I know. And I feel like a lot of women develop them, but I, I, I also feel like you you probably don't know about it unless you've experienced it. Or unless you've known somebody who's experienced it. Or unless they're severe enough that they're actually causing issues. Because some people have them and are asymptomatic. Right. Exactly. And some women find out that they have them like during when they're pregnant sometimes, you know, and not real procedures. Yeah. Right. Mm. Right. Really interesting. So. So you and your mom didn't really talk about it, but your sister was obviously on top of your health as a doctor, you mentioned, you know, what about the other people in your life who you were able to talk to about it and and lean on in terms of, you know, having an advocate? So it's funny. um, I have this close friend um, that I developed a friendship with because we worked together when I was in New York that I told you about. And I promise you before um, she started, because I started working there before her. Um, before I, before she started working there, I felt alone in that job. Um, and I felt ashamed, you know, because I'm always staining everywhere, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know who to talk to. I, I had this mindset that people are looking at me like, how, how long, how many years has she been having her period and she's still bleeding through stuff? Like, you know, I just felt so ashamed, so ashamed. And I couldn't talk to anyone until my friend Alma 
um, came along and I was able to confide in her, you know, and she, I just remember going um, to lunch with her. Um, the first time I told her we were going to lunch and I, it was right around the corner and I couldn't walk. Lauren, like I could not it's walk. Like, I, every, it's also fascinating to me that like was, you literally work in public health. You do, you work at the department of health and human services. And yet there was still shame associated with, this condition or at least the symptoms of the condition. And it's fascinating to me that like, and I think this is sort of part and parcel of being a woman in the world, right. You know, like that here you are having a pretty typical female experience, Mm -hmm. but there's shame around it. Right. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing, right? Like it's probably bad enough that we already associate periods with shame and, and that, you know, we're talking about them more here in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, women have to leave the village when they have their periods, you know. Right. And when there is that kind of association that, that there's a, a lack of hygiene or something when it's a natural process. I mean, part of it is about normalizing, just, normalizing the conversations just about periods, let alone the other conditions. But it's so lucky that you found someone that you could confide in. Right, right. And she was there for me every step of the way. Um, she, she she understood what I was going through, not because um, she's going through it herself, but because she's compassionate, because she's empathetic. Um, she listened to my what I was experiencing. I talked to her about um, fibroids, you know, and because I educated her um, about it, you know, she was so compassionate. Um, and she felt not that she felt bad for me, um, but she didn't want me to go through that, you know, and she actually urged me, like, if you can like get the surgery, um, because first of all, five words are not supposed to be there. They're not normal. Second of all, you want, you want your quality of life back, right? You want to strengthen your quality. You want to improve your quality of life. And if improving your quality of life means getting those fibroids out, then do it. Um, and I'll be there for you, supporting you um, every step of the way. And that made, that encouraged me so, so very much. Like I found an advocate in her. Amazing. Amazing. And it sounds like it's actually, it sort of created your friendship, but also has strengthened it. Yes. Mm. Yes. That's exactly what it is. And I thank her so much for that. Um, Mm. It's, it's amazing. What about the yeah. other influences in your life? Um, have you had other advocates? Honestly, I really haven't, um, except for my mom, um, my sister, and Alma. Like those, I mean, in addition to the White Dress Project, of course, um, yeah. you know, they definitely, like Tanika has been such a strong supporter of me. She, She's like, you know, I understand that you don't want to get the surgery now. Um, you know, I'm here for you. Um, I'm supporting you. Um, I can only guide you, but you, you have to be the one to make that ultimate um, decision. And whatever decision you make, whenever you're ready to get the surgery, just know that I'm here for you. If you have any questions, because she's been through this rodeo like twice already with mm. the surgery. Um, so she's, she's there. She's Tanika has been such an amazing part of my journey, um, such an integral part of my journey. Um, and I so, so, um, appreciate her, um, for everything. Yeah. And I well, 
starting the organization. <laughs> Absolutely. And also like on, on a certain level, how can you not end up being girlfriends with someone who you're talking to about this very personal experience who shares that right. experience with you, as you mentioned earlier, you know, like, yeah. so it gives you an opportunity to become closer to people. And it sounds like in all of these cases, when someone you needed someone to stand up for you, they've done it and done it willingly and with compassion and empathy and care. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think every woman needs that um, suffering with fibroids. I think they need an advocate. Um, I think they need someone who's their cheerleader, their champion, um, because so many of the women suffering with fibroids are suffering alone and in silence. Um, And that's why the White Dress Project was created, you know, to create that platform so that women don't have to suffer in silence, so that we are bonded together as a community fighting for the same issue, for the same mission. Um, And it's been amazing the reach um, that the organization has had since its inception. Um, And I'm so proud to be part of something um, that's so much bigger than my own struggle, so much bigger than myself. Um, And it's it's so meaningful, you know, Mm. so meaningful for me. So. Absolutely. So what about, I mean, I I know that there's no such thing as a typical day, particularly in the midst of a global pandemic, but I'm wondering, (laughs) you know, is, is there sort of a typical day for you and what is that looking like as you're balancing the demands of work and life and managing Mm -hmm. symptoms? Yeah, that's a great question. So with COVID, my workload has actually increased. Um, um, The work that I do with the uh, United States Department of Health um, and the HIV field changes on a daily basis, especially with COVID. Um, And we, like I mentioned to you before we started, um, we just completed our week-long virtual conference today. Um, So I was focused on that for the past couple of weeks because I created an institute, um, a training institute um, at the conference. It's the Intimate Partner Violence Institute. So I worked so hard on that. so it was definitely focused on that for the past couple of weeks to ensure that it's executed successfully now that it, the conference turned from in-person to virtual. Um, so this is HIV and intimate partner violence focus. So it's intimate partner violence that, that has resulted in HIV infection. Or it's so the the, in, the intersection between HIV and IPV is actually bidirectional. So mm-hmm. people with HIV um, are more likely to to become victims of intimate partner violence and people who are victims of intimate partner violence are more likely to contract HIV because of the very nature of, you know, their victimization, you know, yeah, I've grown, that's my second passion um, is IPV trafficking, gender-based violence and as it relates to, you know, HIV. So that's what I've been working on in the past couple of years, trying to just explore that area and um, become more knowledgeable in that area. It's just incredible. I mean, because like this is such meaningful work. And then what you're doing as a board member on the White Dress Project, such meaningful work, like everything you're doing is about patient advocacy and community. Yeah. Yeah. It's about giving a voice to people who don't have a voice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, about marginalized populations who've been silenced. Um, it's about advancing equity in a world that's so filled with injustice and inequities and inequalities. Mm. Um, you know, and I've always said to myself, like, I want to be involved in work that 
gives people a voice that serves humanity, that advances humanity, that strengthens humanity, that unites people. Well, and it's also very reassuring. I mean, I'll say as as a citizen of the United States, you know, like it's very reassuring to know that there are people like you who are working in public Mm -hmm. health under government jurisdiction who aren't pleased with the status quo, who are actually trying to make improvements. Because I think a lot of the narrative that we get direct from the government is things are great, we're doing great. But actually, it's about doing even better. Right, Mm. right. It's, it's, it's about not accepting the status quo. It's about evolving. It's about changing. You know, we're living in changing times. So we have to change with the times. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And it's, it's change doesn't come easy, nor does it come quickly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But if we have people coming together collectively um, to take action against those injustices, against you know, the inequalities that are so pervasive in this country, collective action is so strong, strength in numbers. We can make a difference. We've made a difference. You know, history history shows that, that through collective action, um, differences can be made. You know, it may not solve all the problems in this world, but it'll change something and it'll make somebody's life better. I'm fascinated about this relationship you have with body Mm -hmm. shame, right? Like with your relationship with your own body's functions and like the symptoms of the fibroids, right? When you're Mm -hmm. working as an advocate for so many other people in what sounds to me like a challenge to their potential shames associated with perhaps being victims of intimate partner violence or um, living with HIV, that so much of your work is about saying that there isn't shame in this. And yet you still yourself struggle with your own personal shame or have struggled with your own personal shame around your own body. It's like, it's really Mm -hmm. fascinating that like this idea that we can be both, we can be both advocates and still be working through our own stuff. Right. Yes. Yes. I think um, being an advocate helps you work through your own stuff, through your own challenges, (laughs) you know, because as you're empowering other people, you're also empowering yourself. And I truly believe that. I truly believe that, you know, like I said, when I first started with the White Dress Project, for example, like I never knew how to advocate for myself, especially in the healthcare system. It can be extremely intimidating. Um, but now it's like, I don't take any crap from physicians. Like you're not, (laughs) 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 you're not providing me with the care, the optimal treatment and care that I deserve. I will, I am, I will not hesitate to seek a second opinion. I will not hesitate to find another physician. Um, I, I don't care what you think. This is my life. This is my health. Um, and I deserve better. I I'm, like, I'm like mentally clapping and I'm nodding at all this <laughs> stuff. I'm going to break my neck being like, yes, yes, yes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really amazing. This idea of mm-hmm. growth, like that we can, we can be learning as we're teaching, that we can mm-hmm. be constantly growing and changing, that we are subject to change, that we're allowed to evolve, that permission mm-hmm. to evolve both self and professional, like personal self and professional self simultaneously. It's such a a beautiful idea that like nothing has to be perfect the way that we can constantly make it better. It's very, a very hopeful perspective. It really is. And even with sharing my story, if you had asked me a year and a half ago to come on your show Mm -hmm. and 
tell my fibroid journey, my fibroid story to the world, I would be like, "Mm, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I was not comfortable sharing my story in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't. um, There's just so much cultural misconceptions around the condition. And I just didn't want to put myself out there like that. I didn't feel comfortable putting myself out there like that. You know, I even grew, grew up being told that, you know, you're not supposed to tell the world your personal issues, especially when it comes to health. You know, that's not anybody's business except for yours and your family. You don't need to tell the world. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty common narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But now I see how that can be very selfish, mm. right? Keeping your story to yourself. Um, I think it's so important to give the world the gift of your story because, it can really help somebody else um, going through the same thing. It can really help somebody else. And that's why I now so freely and, you know, willingly um, tell my story without hesitation. I don't even have to think about it anymore. So it's almost like between your work with the White Dress Project and the Department of Public Health or Department of Health and Human Services, you have actually through that work, found a way to empower yourself yes. to take empowerment from the people around you, but to actually create this balance between work and life because your work is actually directly feeding your, your sort of spiritual life in that way. Yes. yes. Oh my gosh. That you just said it, Lauren, you yeah. just said it. That's exactly what it is. That's because That's- I'm one of those people too. And I get it. <laughs> You took the word right out of my mouth. Like that's you said it more eloquently than me. You're very eloquent too. (laughs) (laughs) So so talk okay, look, we've been, you know, you've been through this journey of like grappling with your personal shame, grappling with your diagnosis, Mm -hmm. the potential of future surgery, you know. These Mm -hmm. fibroids, unless you're looking at an ultrasound or you're showing like fibroid belly as they call it, right? You know, when we get the swollen belly, (laughs) it's not, they're not visible, right? So have you ever been in situations where you've been forced to validate the existence of your diagnosis to people who couldn't see it and therefore didn't understand it? Yeah, oh yeah. I think um, some of my friendships, I just, I became a little distanced because of my situation um, because they would ask me to go out um, and I'm like, no, I, I just can't. And, you know, I, I would have to justify it to them, justify why I can't go out. You know, I don't want to go out because I fear having an accident. You know, I fear clotting all over the place. You know, I fear, you know, just being humiliated. I've been humiliated so many times throughout this journey. Like I don't need another humiliation, you know, and I, I, you know, I felt bad, but at the same time, like I'm valid in how I'm feeling. Like, you know, I, I'm very valid. And if you knew the struggle, if you knew the physical and mental toll that this journey takes on so many women, then you would understand why I feel the way I do. And it's nothing personal against you. You know, I'm not saying no for no reason. You know, I have a valid reason. Um, so I definitely had to justify my situation to many people, many friends, boyfriends, you know, and I, I actually didn't even want to date because I don't want to be out on a date and I bleed. 
<laughs> through my clothes. You know, that's just Who wants so to. Yeah. No one wants to bleed, period. <laughs> I know. I know. So yeah, it's definitely um forced me to justify my condition to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations in a lot of different areas yeah. um, of my life. But it sounds like having to justify to other people while it's obviously been a struggle, it sounds Mm -hmm. like it's only made you stand even firmer on your own two feet. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, I think it's also caused me to be resilient. Yeah. You know, um, regardless of whether people understand where I'm coming from, I'm going to continue to stand confidently, boldly, um, and courageously in my truth. Um, and, I'm not going to allow that um, to make me feel small, to allow me to retreat. I'm I'm going to continue to just, you know, accept my journey, embrace my journey, um, but also, you know, not be fearful um, about relationships or losing relationships, because I think my my mind and you know, just my well-being, I think is so much more important, you know, and that's where I, that's where, you know, I was just coming from when it comes to that, you know, just to continue to, to stand boldly, courageously, confidently um, in my truth, regardless of whatever situation um, I find myself in. Where does that strength come from for you? Does it come from like a combination of like being able to do this work that's feeding into your self-confidence, being able to have the advocates in your life that you can lean on and and also having your own inner strength that's sort of risen to the occasion. Is it all of that stuff working all at once? Yeah, I think it's a combination of so many different things. Mm. Um, I definitely think it's, you know, the fact that, you know, just physically, you know, when I was first diagnosed, you know, I, I was going through all that and I still showed up at life. Right. I was going through the physical pain, the physical trauma of having fibroids, and I still showed up at life. And upon reflection, Mm -hmm. you know, I I feel like that made me stronger without even realizing it. Yeah. Right. It made me so much stronger without realizing it. Um, FYI, if you're a female or if you get a period, (laughs) if you get a period, you're stronger. Seriously. Because the world has not been designed around your needs. Right. Right. So true. Oh, my strength comes from serving as well. Mm. Um, You know, serving other women, serving other people who are or who are disenfranchised, who are marginalized. I get my strength and knowing that my story and um, my lived experience is helping to change somebody else's life for the good, for the better. I get my strength from that. That actually fuels me. <laughs> you Will know. you be my friend, please? Yeah. <laughs> I'm loving everything you're saying. I love this. I mean, it's so inspiring. Um, and it's like, we all need people around us who are growing as we're growing too. But you also yeah. bring up this idea of, understanding, you know, that like with friendships over the years, you know, like people yeah. might not have understood, but it brings up this idea in this world where, I mean, in this country in particular, right now, we're dealing with a lot of divisive stuff in the news and reasons to not understand other people. But mm-hmm. it's amazing how, if you sort of push past understanding into empathy, that like, I don't need to understand what your experience is. If you tell me it's hard, that's all I need to know. Really, if you're having a hard time, period, you're having a hard time. 
What is there to understand? It's like, it's as simple as just accepting your friends at their word. Right. And I think like if, if, if somebody is truly your friend, then they would understand. Yeah. Right. They would understand and they wouldn't make you feel bad about your struggle or about your situation, but instead they were, they would be there to support you. And then you make new friends because of being true to yourself. Like right. <laughs> I know. Right. Be true to yourself. I like yeah. people will respect you so much more if you're just true to yourself. You know, I so believe that. Mm, so I believe that. that. I, I am on board with that message. So mm-hmm. what about, I mean, like, you know, you may have lost friends along the way and gained new ones. Um, but have you also, what about within the, the healthcare system? Have you experienced perhaps undue prejudice or privilege either way? Um, particularly as it regards the way you present, uh, the identity that you present with, right? You present as a black woman when you're in the healthcare system. And we also know that fibroids are slightly more common among black women than Mm -hmm. among other races. So can you see your circumstances going through the medical system with fibroids, maybe being different if you presented otherwise, like if you walked in as a white woman, a white man, you know, like, if you came in and you were someone different and your identity was different, would your experience have been different? So I can say most recently um, in 2017, when I first moved to Maryland, um, I found a doctor online. Um, she looked really good on paper. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, she, she looked good on paper. Um, Hi, there's the rub. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but when I first, my very first visit with her, Um, I, she did an ultrasound on me and she made a comment while she was doing it. She said, Hmm, your uterus is massively distorted. And (laughs) fibroids. (laughs) Like, why would you say that to a person? I know. And you know, just taken aback by it. Cause I've never heard of my uterus describe like that to be honest with you that's like my first time but I knew why she knew why confidence yeah exactly like I know why like why make a a a judgmental comment like that like I know and it's like you know your your uterus is the size of a woman who's five months pregnant I'm like yes I'm like okay you know and even when I asked her like what does that mean that my uterus is massively distorted she didn't answer me right away. You know, she just nonchalantly shrugged it off. She said, just what I said. And oh. I'm like, Ooh. Oh, okay. good. thank you for your horrible words. Wow. You know, and <laughs> right. And, you know, at that time I was still very new in, in the white dress project in 2017. That's actually when I first started um, with the white dress project. So I sort of kind of endured that. You know, and I and I said to myself, okay, let me give her the benefit of the doubt. Like maybe she's just having a bad day. Um, so but kind I, of you. How many how many white men would give someone the benefit of the doubt when they piss them off in a doctor's office? Do you know what it, this is? This gender and race experience. How much is a patient willing to forgive a doctor? Depending right. on these complex layers of identity, like wow. Right. So you you gave her the benefit of the doubt and. Right. And I just noticed the pattern of constantly speaking to me like I was little, like I was less than. Um, She's very sarcastic, um, very condescending. Does she know that you work for the Department of Health and Human Services too? No, I don't have those conversations with her. 
<laughs> but if maybe if she'd known, like, right. I know. Yeah. No. And I just, you know, I, I unfortunately endured that for um, like two years Ugh. until I said, you know, I can't take this anymore. Like I need to find another physician um, because this is, I, and another reason um, that I didn't get surgery because she actually told me I needed it. And I'm like, I don't want her. her. I don't trust her, you know? So that's another reason I probably would have, you know, done the surgery two years ago if I had a different doctor. (laughs) Um, But in the meantime, you're paying her. She's giving you services that you're paying for and whether you're paying directly or your insurance is paying, she's being paid to treat you. She's your employee. Right. Yeah. She was disrespecting you the whole time and giving you reasons. Very disrespectful, rude, disrespectful. Like, ah, I just, I I couldn't take it anymore. I don't even know why I decided to stay for two years, two years too long. Like I should have left her (laughs) that first time. Well, you were at a different point in your own self-empowerment journey, you know? Yeah. It's amazing. So you've now, have you now found a doctor who is working for you in the best way? Yeah. He's amazing. Um, I've, I've been oh, going isn't to it funny? It's often I've had really good experiences with male OBs. <laughs> and I think it's because they're like, they're a little more gentle and they have to have a nurse, like a female nurse with them in the room. And yeah. they ask a lot more permission questions, don't they? They do. They do. It's, it's amazing. I've been going to this um, particular physician for the past, I would say not even six months. So it's really new. Um, and Lauren, when I tell you it's not like night and day between this physician and my previous one, it's literally like night and day. Like he takes the time to to explain my condition to me. He draws things out for me. Oh, that's so great. Um, he's so compassionate. He's caring. Like he listens to my concerns, to my fears. He addresses those concerns and those fears. And this is not to say that like a male OBGYN is going right. to be better than a female. This just happens to be the experience that you and I have had. But like, we also need more females who have had vast experiences and we need more right. women of color in particular to be practicing medicine. You know, so like there's a lot of complex stuff at play here, but I'm just so thrilled that you found someone who wasn't practicing medical racism. Right. It's amazing. And you can tell he's very genuine. And I think a lot of doctors can take some notes <laughs> from yeah. him. Yeah, absolutely. And would you say like having had this experience yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. um, certainly racial inequality, perhaps a bit of gender inequality in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Would you say that these kinds of inequities in the healthcare system are a public health crisis? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, like, you know, like I work in the in the field of public health. Mm -hmm. um, And there is this fundamental principle that forms the bedrock of everything that we do. Um, and that principle is that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. Um, and that then why regard- are we still paying into insurance? <laughs> What's happening? The Department of Health and Human Services sees <laughs> healthcare as a human right? Then what are we doing, America? It's about the leadership, the administration, whoever's yeah. in the administration, like basically leads everything. Well, and that changes and- every four to eight years. So, yeah. Exactly. That's why it's so hard to you know, have a solid system. Um, in a way, in you, need, you need that to be a private system so that you have consistent <laughs> leadership. Like, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? It's so ironic. 
It's so ironic. So true. Yeah. Wow. So talk to us about your advocacy work, because at some point along this journey in, in finding sisterhood, in finding the people who could speak to your lived experiences, you became an advocate yourself and you were already doing that through your, your paid employment. So Mm -hmm. what does that journey look like for you? Can you talk to us about what you've been doing to raise awareness of fibroids and of, and of health inequities? Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, my um, journey started out with, at least with the white dress project, it started out with me just seeking support for my own journey and my own struggle. But it's really evolved into advocacy, you know, and this this sort of lifelong mission um, to advocate for women who are suffering in silence and suffering alone um, with this condition. Um, it's It's been so rewarding, you know, so rewarding um, to be a part of this, to be a part of something that is really giving a voice to women. And it's really um, making a, a, an incredible impact, you know, and sharing our stories, creating that platform where we can share our stories because there's so much power in our stories, you know, and it's not easy to be that vulnerable, but there is so much strength and power in that vulnerability, you know, and sharing my story through the White Dress Project. Um, it's so healing and it's so liberating for me. And I know that it's healing and liberating for, you know, other women who hear my story. And it helps to break down the walls of silence, the the guilt and the shame that keeps women suffering in silence, you know, and it, it gives women hope. Um, And we all know also that storytelling is such a critical tool for advocacy. You know, for far too long, um, our stories and our voices have been neglected, overlooked, silenced, you know, but through my advocacy work with the White Dress Project, you know, we are changing that. We're changing the narrative. Um, The patient voice and story are at the center and at the forefront of everything um, that we do. And it's going to continue to be at the center and the forefront um, of everything that we do. So um, do you think that's also something where your work with the White Dress Project has in turn influenced your work in public health? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, like with the the Intimate Partner Violence Institute, for example, that I um, created for this conference, it's all about people with lived experience, right? Like I wanted people, I wanted them to hear um, the from right from the the mouth of those who are going through it, right? Because it's easy for me to go up there and have some PowerPoint slides talking about that intersection and all of that, but I don't think that resonates with people the way this lived experience resonates with people. Um, and I and I feel like that it's like that for everything, for everything. Um, you need to hear from the, the from the people that whatever issue you're trying to change is impacting. They need to have a seat at the table. You know, they need to have a seat at the table. Um, they have to be at, at the beginning, middle, and end um, of the change process. Um, so that's why you know, that influences each other. My work in in public health at the Department of Health influences my work in the White Dress Project and vice versa. How beautiful is that? Yeah. I mean, this may be sort of a tough question to ask you, and I I don't know how much you're you're sort of professionally speaking able to speak to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. (laughs) Uh In what way is our healthcare system working for patients? (laughs) 
And in what ways does it require improvement? I mean, you're already working toward creating improvements, certainly in terms of utilizing and leveraging story to create conversation and, and to open people up to these other experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd love to get as much as you can share with us of your take on that. Right. So from my, from my knowledge, when it comes to this complex healthcare system, um, I, I guess a couple of things come to mind when it comes to what's working well for patients and what's not. Um, so we, we do have quality healthcare services. You know, the, the United States has medical equipment and ensures that citizens are able to get quality medical care, you know, but in addition to that, we also have some of the best trained physicians and surgeons in the world. And we also have the freedom to choose our own health providers if you have insurance. In and of itself, you know, these are great qualities in our healthcare system that work well for some patients. But the problem is that there's unequal access in these high quality services, which brings me to the areas that need improvement, which I think there's more areas that need improvement than areas that are working to be I am perfectly so honest glad with you. you can say that. I am so glad you can say that. <laughs> I'm also so glad we have people like you who are going to bat for everyday patients. So please proceed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my lifelong mission, Lauren. That's my lifelong mission. I'm on board with that. I'm buying what you're selling. <laughs> yeah, we need we need people. We need people to be on board. Um, but so what's not working? Healthcare services are very expensive, <laughs> very ex- exorbitantly expensive. And if you are uninsured or underinsured, you will have access to very limited Um, medical care. Um, There's millions of Americans who are uninsured and underinsured. And despite the fact that healthcare is so expensive, we have some of the worst health outcomes in the the world. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, in addition, um, we may have some of the best physicians in the world, but some of those great physicians are not providing equal high quality treatment and care due to racism mm-hmm. yep. and bias and discrimination. Um, and these are just a few of the many areas that need improvement within our, within our health, within our healthcare system. And these um, shortcomings, they really do negate that principle that I mentioned before that healthcare is a right and not a privilege, you know, and I don't know exactly what it will take to fix these complex issues that exist within the healthcare asking. system. But <laughs> you, you sort of answered that though. It sounds like the way we change it is by continuing to share patient stories. Right, right. Continuing to share patient stories, but also I think it, it'll take stakeholders um, yeah. from different sectors uniting, coming together. Um, well, it's with either a- removing, removing the private element or making sure the private element is broad. Right, mm. right, exactly. Mm. Um, and it's, it's going to take, I'm going to quote John Lewis right now, because I just love yes, this. Yes, because we love to make good trouble. <laughs> Please. We got to we gotta come together to make good trouble. You know, yes. and a little bit before that, like, oh, this quote resonates so much with me. Mm. He said, it is going to take, ordinary people with or extraordinary vision, you know, to redeem the soul of mm. America. 
Yeah. You know, by getting into good trouble. It and gives I me so great hope that you're one of those people. Oh, thank you. I mean, thank how you. can I not hear your story and, and see where you are in your professional and personal life and think otherwise? Right. You right. know, I mean, like, guys, this is the kind of person we have on our side. And like, that's exciting. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, one person can't change it all, but you can do something. Yeah, right? you can do something. Yep. And everyone has different <laughs> ways of showing up. Right. Everybody has their own gifts um, that they can contribute to the movement for change. Um, and whatever platform, whatever gift that I've been blessed with, you know, I definitely want to continue um, using it to affect positive change. Well, I'd say you're a direct descendant of John Lewis in that sense. So what about, I'd love for you to offer some, some top tips here. Um, Top three tips for someone who maybe they suspect something's off and they've got some kind of invisible condition brewing, or maybe someone who's already been diagnosed. Maybe they're living with fibroids, just like you, you know, what would your top three tips be for managing and, and living with invisible illness? Right. Um, so like at the White Dress Project, we're, al- we're always talking about being a, your own best health advocate. And for me on my journey, um, I'm just using my experience um, to, to provide those tips. It's so important to be informed, right? It's so important to know your options. Um, do research about your condition and about the options that exist. Um, because pain bias, for example, is real. Medical bias is real. Discrimination is real. Um, medical gaslighting is real. And yes. it is <laughs> right. So it's so critical for us to be informed about our condition and about our options if we're going to be effective collaborators in our treatment and in our care. Um, the second tip I would say would be to trust yourself. Um, you know your body better than anybody else. Physicians, doctors, they actually rely on you knowing your body to come up with a diagnosis, you know, and if you suspect that something is wrong or off, then it probably is. So don't delay going to seek treatment. Don't Don't allow doctors or anybody else to lead you to second guess yourself. Um, and I guess my last tip would be to seek a second opinion. If you're being dismissed, if your doctor is not listening to you, um, I would say seek a second, third, fourth, fifth opinion if you have to. And don't be intimidated by your physician. Your relationship with your physician should be a partnership. You know, we're working in collaboration with our physicians to ensure that we are receiving the best quality care that we deserve. And if you're not receiving that, then you need to have the courage to be able to seek care elsewhere. Um, like I said, I, I will reiterate this, reiterate this. We are our own best health advocates. Invest in your health and pursue optimal health the way you pursue everything else in life because health is wealth. So we need to invest in it. And all of these three tips are us investing in our health. And investing in ourselves. And investing in ourselves. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What about, here's a fun top three list. This one's my favorite because it gets us a chance to get to know you even better. But what are, Mm -hmm. look, we know you've probably had to adjust around life with fibroids, you know? Right. Um, Maybe make lifestyle changes. Um, And I'm wondering what the top three things are in your life that you turn to for unbridled joy. These can be 
secret indulgences, maybe comfort activities, you know, maybe it's a guilty pleasure, but like, I'm wondering what your top three things are that you turn to when you just need that grounding, fulfilling moment of total joy. Where do you go? Okay. So these might be boring. Um, (laughs) No, I bet they're not. I'm sure I'll be like, yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) So my, my faith, so I'm a woman of faith. Mm. So my faith is first. Why would this be boring? This is super exciting. Okay, great. I know you were talking about about guilty pleasures. So I'm like, I know, but it's also just a place of joy. What is your, but it's just that joy means different things for different people in different ways. Right. And like our levels of joy are different for me. I I get like the most joy from doing couch potato stuff, you know, like, but like this is, But like that faith is a place that you go. I mean, I think that's quite clear in in the spiritual journey that you've undergone and that you're sharing with other people. Even if it's not from a religious perspective, there is a spiritual element at play here. And and your faith has obviously played a huge role in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, just to speak a little more about that, um, you know, my faith really does keep me grounded um, and level headed. It, It provides, you know, that light for me. Um, in times of darkness. And, you know, whenever I'm feeling down or or discouraged about any of the challenges that I'm experiencing, I definitely, first first and foremost, I turn to my faith Mm -hmm. um, to get me through those hard times. You know, my faith is absolutely something that I will never compromise. Um, And, you know, my faith has taught me really to look at my struggle with fibroids. um, And instead of asking, you know, why is this happening to me? my question should be, what is this teaching me? You know, is it teaching me resilience? Is it teaching me strength? Is it teaching me to use my experiences and my stories to empower others? You know, so essentially my my faith definitely gives me hope beyond my fibroids. It really does. You know, um, yes, I would say the second thing would be uh, my family. You know, my family is my support well, still, system. Nothing boring about this. How <laughs> dare know. you judge yourself? <laughs> I know. See, I'm, 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 I'm judging myself. I'm judging myself. <laughs> it's all right. We all have moments. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, my family, Lauren, yeah. is 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 really my support system, my foundation, my rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how I would have made it this far in my journey, both mentally and physically, um, had it not been for my support system that I find in my family. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and lastly, I think I alluded to this, um, a little bit previously, um, serving, you know, serving women, um, struggling with fibroids, through the White Dress Project has been truly rewarding. You know, just knowing that my story and my advocacy has made such a positive impact um, in the lives of others, it, it really fuels me, it motivates me, it keeps me going. Um, and that's something that will definitely, I will definitely not compromise is serving others. Even through my work with the United States Department of Health, you know, I it gives me so much joy, you know, knowing that, I'm giving a voice to people who are marginalized, you know, mm. people who have been hidden in the shadows and, you know, forgotten, neglected. Yeah. None of us you know, I'm make- that way. Right. Right. We're right. Honoring, so that, we're honoring lives past and present and future. Right. 
Right. Exactly. So these are, you know, things that I, I would never compromise that that keep me going, keep me happy, keep me joyful. Um, and they create a legacy as well, which is just a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 I love that. Yeah. It's it's just a, it's such a rewarding, fulfilling thing for me. Mm. I live by quotes. Yeah, you know, give I me one. Give me, give me. So, like just talking to you just made me think of a quote by Muhammad Ali. Mm. He said, service to others or service to humanity is the rent that we pay for our room here on earth. Yes. And that. Well, you that, gave me goosebumps. I know. <laughs> yeah, it just, that's, it, I take that with me everywhere. It's so true. Like, I, I, I so believe that I wasn't put on this earth to serve myself. I wasn't put on this earth for that. I was put on this earth to serve others, to be a light to others, you know. To, but that to also restrict. doesn't mean that you, you you aren't allowed to take time and light yourself up, too. Oh. Like, it oh, sort yeah. of goes both ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Oh, yeah. You're picking some good quotes here today. So, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah, they're really. I mean, what incredible, inspiring people. So mm-hmm. what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and the fibroid community? But I mean, any community that you're a part of, you're, you're taking part in so many different intersecting forms of identity. How can they support you and in, in your community in the work that you do? Right. So when I think about the White Dress Project, so, you know, Kamala Harris just introduced. uh, You mean our future vice president? I'm sorry, our future president. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. I was so, like, joyful when I saw that. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. So so, so tell everyone what happened, because Kamala has officially introduced the first bill, right? No. So, okay. So the bill was initially introduced in the house back in March by Congresswoman Yvette Clark, Mm -hmm. um, in the house. Got it. Um, but it just didn't get as much, um, attention Mm -hmm. because I guess Kamala Harris is more popular, I guess, than Yvette Clark, but we definitely appreciate, um, I don't want to say more popular. That sounds so bad. Um, High profile. Yeah, more high profile. So the bill is the bill is to um, increase research into fibroids, correct? Yeah, yeah. So one of the primary goals of the bill is to allocate about thirty million dollars over the course of four years from twenty twenty one. A lot of money. I know. In the the health in the health world, that's that's change, pocket change. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. So I we urge. Okay, so Kamala Harris introduced it in the Senate. Got it. On July 30th. So my At the ask, very end of Fibroid Awareness Month. Right? God bless you, Miss Harris. God bless you. We love her. Right. It's the culminate, it's the best fibroid awareness month that I've been a part of. Like that just that was a culmination. And it's been a bad work. year and a weird year, and that's a highlight for sure. It's such a highlight. Oh my goodness. Such a beautiful highlight. So yeah. my ask would be to, I urge women, I urge supporters of women, you know, suffering with fibroids to call your congressperson mm. and act, tell them how important this bill is to you, to, to people around you, and ask them to co-sponsor this yeah. bill, please. That's amazing. Now, yes. is, is there information on the White Dress Project website in order for people to contact their local representatives via email, phone, whatever is easy? 
oh yeah, we should put that up there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's forthcoming on the White Dress Project website. But yes. in the time, you can go to your local government website, find out yeah. information for your local rep, and just call and say, "I want you to support the fibroid right. bill that Kamala Harris is now bringing to the Senate." Right. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. Because we, I know um, Tanika had a call. Um, I think she had a call. Well, we're definitely like in conversation, continuously in conversation um, with their offices. Um, even, even now that Kamala Harris has become the VP pick, mm-hmm. um, they're still very interested in the bill. So That's that great. gives us so much hope. Um, they're an engaged, engaged, uh, office. Yeah, very much so. So we're going to be talking about ways to gain moment, continue the momentum um, for this bill. It it, it might take a while to, to, you know, make it into law, but. But it's it's also not inconceivable because it's not a ridiculous ask. Exactly. It, It really isn't. It's important. Nine out of 10 black women will get fibroids. 70% of white women will get fibroids. Mm. 80% of black women will be diagnosed by the age of 50. Like it's such a, it's so, it's It's such a common common. diagnosis. Yeah. It's so common. You know, we can no longer overlook it. Like it's so, it's, it's, it's an important women's health issue. Yeah. Um, So we're really excited about this bill. Um, And, you know, support, support. That's my, Yes. Yes. Also sharing your story. Um, That's the big way that you can support um, the community. And we both offer ways you can share your story through the white dress project. You can share your story through an invisible pod. You you contact all of us. We want to help you. Yes. Yes. And and Lauren, I'm so grateful to you for your partnership. Um, Oh my gosh. I'm so impressed by the work that you guys do and by you as an individual. It's like, it's so fantastic that we all found each other. Well, it all happened because you reached out to me. Yeah, because I follow your podcast on on Instagram and I'm like, I love this. I love the fact that she's bringing invisible illnesses to the light. It's so important. Like, I love your platform and and the awareness that you're raising around. Well, I love your platform and the awareness you're raising. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Absolutely. No, but thank you. I I mean, I truly appreciate that. So one more question for you, which is what's next in your advocacy and in your wellness journey? What is next for NCAM? Yeah. So regarding advocacy, we're going to continue to educate, advocate, tell our stories, tell, tell our lived experiences. We're going to continue working together for change. That's not going to change. You know, we're going to continue fighting. Um, w- with regard to my wellness journey, so I've actually in current conversation with my physician about getting these fibroids out. And I'm getting so surgery. proud of you. Yeah. Yes. yes. So I had a conversation, a telehealth appointment a few weeks back with my physician, and I said, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm ready to take that next step to get these fibroids out because I'm tired of being on the depot shot. You know, I, I feel like I'm a slave to the shot, you know, because it gives me so much relief that I have to take it every three months. Um, and it's it, it, there's just so much anxiety around that. What if I miss it? If I miss it, I'm going to end up bleeding again. I don't, you know, and I don't want that. I feel like the shot is controlling me and I don't yeah. want that. 
I want to take control back of my life and my well-being. Um, So the only way to do that currently is to get surgery and to get these bad boys out. Yeah. (laughs) So I look look forward to seeing them out. Um, Yes. And saying good riddance to those. Good riddance. Those naughty fibroids. Don't you ever come back. Um, (laughs) On the other, on the flip side, and Cam, you are always welcome back. It has been oh. such an honor speaking to you. Can you also tell everyone where they can find both the the U.S. Department of Health and uh, the White Dress Project, where they can find all of the stuff that you're doing, including the Intimate Partner Violence Institute? Right. So you can um, find the Intimate Partner Violence Institute that I created. It's it's not up yet. Um, but it's going to be on something called the Target HIV Center. You just Google that and click on it. And we'll link to it on the website for the episode too. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so Target HIV Center, you'll see the that in, in addition to the other sessions from the conference. Um, the White Dress Project, you can find us on Instagram at We Can Wear White. Um, on Twitter, We Can underscore Wear White. Facebook, the White Dress Project, we colon, we can wear white. Um, our face or our website is thewhitedressproject.org. And you can email us um, at we can wear white at gmail.com. So it. please feel free to reach out, follow us, um, get involved in the work that we're doing. Um, we definitely would love to have all of you um, join us. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. I love that so much. And Kim, is there anything else you'd like to share with everyone? No, um, I just, just, you know, I, I love people Mm. so much. Um, and I'm someone that you can always reach out to if, if you're having, um, any difficulties, whether it's fibroid or anything else, you know, I, I'm a very positive person, even in the midst of challenges. So, feel free to reach out to me. And I hope everybody is really staying well and staying safe um, during these challenging times. And I hope you're all taking care of yourself um, mentally and physically um, because health is wealth and we need to take care of it. We need to invest in health. So thank you, Lauren, again. And Kim, thank you so much. It's such a, a joy to speak to you and I can't wait for everyone to hear this episode. Thank you. I'm so excited. This is amazing. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.